I have always wanted a garden of my own. Other people's gardens are all very well, but the visitor never sees them at their best. He comes down in June, perhaps, and says something polite about the roses. You ought to have seen them last year, says his host disparagingly, and the visitor represses with difficulty the retort, you ought to have asked me down to see them last year. Or, perhaps, he comes down in August and lingers for a moment beneath the fig tree. Poor show of figs, says the host, I don't know what's happened to them. Now we had a record crop of raspberries. Never seen them so plentiful before. And the visitor has to console himself with the thought of the raspberries, which he has never seen, and will probably miss again next year. It is not very comforting. Give me, therefore, a garden of my own. Let me grow my own flowers, and watch over them from seedhood to senility. Then shall I miss nothing of their glory, and when visitors come I can impress them with my stories of the wonderful show of groundsel which we had last year. For the moment I am contenting myself with groundsel. To judge by the present state of the garden, the last owner must have prided himself chiefly on his splendid show of canaries. Indeed, it would not surprise me to hear that he referred to his garden as the backyard. This would take the heart out of anything which was trying to flower there, and it is only natural that, with the exception of the three groundsel beds, the garden is now a wilderness. Perhaps wilderness gives you a misleading impression of space, the actual size of the pleasance being about two hollyhocks by one, but it is the correct word to describe the air of neglect which hangs over the place. However, I am going to alter that. With a garden of this size, though, one has to be careful. One cannot decide lightly upon a croquet lawn here, an orchard there, and a rockery in the corner, one has to go all out for the one particular thing, whether it is the last hoop and the stick of a croquet lawn, a mulberry tree, or an herbaceous border. Which do we want most a fruit garden, a flower garden, or a water garden? Sometimes I think fondly of a water garden, with a few perennial goldfish flashing swiftly across it, and ourselves walking idly by the margin and pointing them out to our visitors, and then I realize sadly that, by the time an adequate margin has been provided for ourselves and our visitors, there will be no room left for the goldfish. At the back of my garden I have a high brick wall. To whom the bricks actually belong I cannot say but at any rate I own the surface rights on this side of it. One of my ideas is to treat it as the back cloth of a stage and paint a vista on it. A long avenue of immemorial elms, leading up to a gardener's lodge at the top of the wall I mean at the end of the avenue might create a pleasing impression. My workroom leads out into the garden, and I have a feeling that, if the door of this room were opened, and then hastily closed again on the plea that I mustn't be disturbed, a visitor might obtain such a glimpse of the avenue and the gardener's lodge as would convince him that I had come into property. He might even make an offer for the estate, if he were set upon a country house in the heart of London. But you have probably guessed already the difficulty in the way of my vista. The back wall extends into the gardens of the householders on each side of me. They might refuse to co-operate with me, they might insist on retaining the blank ugliness of their walls, or endeavoring, as they endeavor now, 
I believe, to grow some unenterprising creeper up them, with the result that my vista would fail to create the necessary illusion when looked at from the side. This would mean that our guests would have to remain in one position, and that even in this position they would have to stand to attention a state of things which might mar their enjoyment of our hospitality. Until, then, our neighbors give me a free hand with their segments of the wall, the vista must remain a beautiful dream. However, there are other possibilities. Since there is no room in the garden for a watchdog and a garden, it might be a good idea to paint a phosphorescent and terrifying watchdog on the wall. Perhaps a watch lion would be even more terrifying and, presumably, just as easy to paint. Any burglar would be deterred if he came across a lion suddenly in the back garden. One way or another, it should be possible to have something a little more interesting than mere bricks at the end of the estate. And if the worst comes to the worst if it is found that no flowers, other than groundsel, will flourish in my garden, owing to lack of soil or lack of sun then the flowers must be painted on the walls. This would have its advantages, for we should waste no time over the early and uninteresting stages of the plant, but depict it at once in its full glory. And we should keep our garden up to date. When delphiniums went out of season, we should rub them out and give you chrysanthemums, and if an untimely storm uprooted the chrysanthemums, in an hour or two we should have a wonderful show of dahlias to take their place. And we should still have the floor space free for a sundial, or if you insist on exercise for the last hoop and the stick of a full-sized croquet lawn. I do not claim to be an authority on either the history or the practice of chess, but, as the poet Gray observed when he saw his old school from a long way off, it is sometimes an advantage not to know too much of one's subject. The imagination can then be exercised more effectively. So when I am playing Capablanca or Old Robinson for the championship of the home pastures, my thoughts are not fixed exclusively upon the mate which is threatening, they wander off into those enchanted lands of long ago, when flesh and blood knights rode at stone-built castles and thin-lipped bishops, all smiles and side-long glances, plotted against the kings who ventured to oppose them. This is the real fascination of chess. You observe that I speak of castles, not of rooks. I do not know whence came this custom of calling the most romantic piece on the board by the name of a very ordinary bird, but I, at least, will not be a party to it. I refuse to surrender the portcullis and the moat, the bastion, and the well-man towers, which were the features of every castle with which hitherto I have played, in order to take the field with allies so unromantic as a brace of rooks. You may tell me that rook is a corruption of this or that word, meaning something which has never laid an egg in its life. It may be so, but in that case you cannot blame me for continuing to call it the castle, which its shape proclaims it. Knowing nothing of the origin of the game, I can tell myself stories about it. That it was invented by a woman is obvious, for why else should the queen be the most powerful piece of them all? She lived, this woman, in a priest-ridden land, but she had no love for the church. Neither bland white bishop nor crooked smiling black bishop did she love, that is why she made them move sideways. Yet she could not deny them their power. 
They were as powerful as the gallant young knight who rode past her window singing to battle, where he swooped upon the enemy impetuously from this side, and that, heedless of the obstacles in the way, or worked two of them into such a position that, though one might escape, the other was doomed to bite the dust. Yet the bishop, man of peace though he proclaimed himself, was as powerful as he, but not so powerful as a baron in his well-fortified castle. For sometimes there were places beyond the influence of the church, if one could reach them in safety, though when the church hunted in couples, the king's priest and the queen's priest out together, then there was no certain refuge, and one must sally upon them bravely and run the risk of being excommunicated. No, she did not love the church. Sometimes I think that she was herself a queen, who had suffered at the hands of the bishops, and, just as you or I put our enemies into a book, thereby gaining much private satisfaction even though they do not recognize themselves, so she made a game of her enemies and enjoyed her revenge in secret. But if she were a queen, then she was a queen mother, and the king was not her husband but her little son. This would account for the perpetual intrigues against him, and the fact that he was so powerless to aid himself. Probably the enemy was too strong for him in the end, and he and his mother were taken into captivity together. It was in prison that she invented the royal game, the young king amused himself by carving out the first rough pieces. But was she a queen? Sometimes I think that I have the story wrong, for what queen in those days would have assented to a proposition so democratic as that a man-at-arms, upon in the language of the unromantic, could rise by his own exertions to the dignity of royalty itself. But if she were a waiting maid in love with the king's own man-at-arms, then it would be natural that she should set no limit to her ambitions for him. The man-at-arms crowned would be in keeping with her most secret dreams. These are the things of which I think when I push my king's man-at-arms two leagues forward. A game of chess is a romance sport, when it is described in that dull official notation P to K4 KT to KB3, a story should be woven around it. One of these days, perhaps, I shall tell the story of my latest defeat. Lewis Carroll had some such intention when he began, Alice through the looking glass, but he went at it half-heartedly. Besides, being a clergyman and writing as he did for children, he was handicapped, he dared not introduce the bishops. I shall have no such fears, and my story will be serious.